Hey, this is Rain Hendricks, and welcome to episode 182 of Greater Than Code. I am here with my friend and co-host, John Sowers. Thanks, Rain. And I'm here with our guest, Ellen Wandra. Ellen is a coder, cat herder, and very crafty. She likes writing on software, the intersection of software and art, and quite a lot of other interesting things that we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thanks so much for having me here. Well, we'll start with the first question, the one we always start with. Uh, What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? So my superpower is that I always know what my cats and dogs are thinking. And I acquired that one from just spending way too much time with them. Even before the self-isolation, I uh, just had way too much time alone with my pets. I always know before they start doing the like, hey, we got to go outside, that my dogs need to go for a walk. I always know before my cat shows up and is like, all right, I'm going to jump on your lap and start eating that microphone, that that's what she's about to do. Cool. Do you find that that translates into humans at various times, or is it simply cat-specific? I think it does translate to humans, actually. I just, I know more cats and dogs than humans, so I practice that power more often with animals, because I'm so cool and I have so many (laughs) friends. It's all about observation. Actually, I think it translates more to children, too, because like observing animals has made me realize that they give off a lot of subtle signals. And then you also see that like kids are also, you know, constantly giving off subtle signals. And then some adults who are only used to communicating through language look at a child who is clearly like, hey, I'm hungry or hey, I'm thirsty or whatever. And they're like, well, you aren't saying that in words, so you are nothing. You, that's a, an obscure box of nothingness. <laughs> like, I have no idea what you're trying to communicate. And I'm like, it's holding a water glass. <laughs> like, it wants water in it. <laughs> Give the child water. <laughs> Just because it can't say the words, I want water, doesn't mean it's not communicating. Give me water. So paying attention, really. Yes. My superpower is paying attention to nonverbal cues. <laughs> That's actually pretty powerful. Good one. Yeah, it works out sometimes. I definitely do think that that is a superpower because, you know, most communication is nonverbal. And Virginia Satir, there it is in the first minute. I check that on your bingo sheet. <laughs> talks about congruence as manifesting as alignment between what you say and how you say it. And being able to see when someone isn't being congruent, I I really think is a superpower, especially for people who try to facilitate difficult conversations and things like that. So I feel like that ability to detect incongruence is is super handy. Like, as you were saying, Rain, like if you're in an important conversation, whether it's emotionally intense or practically intense or, or whatever, like being able to tell when someone is not in congruence is really useful so that you can either help them realize that they're not fully like synchronized or so that you can realize that they're not really synchronized because they're intentionally misleading you or, you know, trying to present something that isn't the way it is. Yeah, very much so. And I think my powers personally tend more towards the former, towards recognizing that someone does have that incongruity within themselves, within what they're saying and what they're feeling, and noticing like subtle cues in their language or what they're communicating with words and what they're communicating with feelings and being able to point that out. Have you all seen that show, Lie to Me? Yes. It's a good show. Tim Roth is incredible. I think of it as not so much being a lie detector, it's being able to see when the word someone is saying isn't what they're really wanting to communicate. 
What are the kinds of lies? So I'm, I'm aware that it exists, but I don't know much about it. What kinds of lies are they talking about? So the show is based on the research into micro expressions that Malcolm Gladwell talks about in what was it? Blink, I think. Yeah. Uh-huh. Blink. And so the show is basically a author avatar of the dude who did the original research who now fights crime. Like it's an author, like an author stand in for that dude played by Tim Roth, who detects lies and fights crime. Nice. And the, the way that he detects lies is by noticing micro expressions that indicate that the thing they're saying isn't really the thing they mean. So like shaking your head no when you say yes is you know one of the cliche ones but it's also a real thing but i i think of it less as like spotting out lies like aha you're lying and more spotting when people are having trouble being fully themselves so it's very interesting i want to say too though that i believe i would need to like look it up to double check but i want to say that there's certain particular levels of neurodivergence that micro expressions are are like the opposite of what the micro expression law says so in particular things like um, looking in the wrong direction when you're remembering something versus making something up things like that so expressional things that they see in neurotypical people and say like hey that indicates duplicity are actually just standard forms of expression within like people who are autistic um, or people who, I don't actually remember what the people who are on certain, I don't remember the words. <laughs> my, yeah, my, brain I, was, my brain was so focused on Germany this morning. I was not thinking about, about micro expressions, but it's interesting. That sounds like a good show. I always think about that when micro expressions come up. I, I will say in defense of the show that one thing they always do is have a little bit where he establishes a baseline by getting them to tell him a lie so that he can see what they look like when they're lying or something like that. So it is true, I think, that these things don't manifest the same way in everyone. Sure, sure. And also, so it, like, I mean, we're not going to, to fictional like drama shows going like, oh, yeah, this is going to be exactly like a representation yeah. of, of how it should be in real life. He's basically a crime fighting superhero. Like it's a superhero show. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I think I think that um, whole like which direction you look when you're recalling versus uh, like confabulating is I think that was pretty well debunked. So and I know that the the science behind the micro expression stuff is I, as as of the last information I had wasn't like 100% like, yes, we have this locked in kind of a thing. And I think that point about neurodivergence is a really good one because, you know, if if all the research did was on grand students at Stanford, then that's a very narrow slice of the population and their behaviors. It's also very often for researchers to only do research on people who are uh, assigned male at birth, <laughs> in particular mm-hmm. for research. I mean, I guess that's more often for research on things with uh, medical issues, but it's often considered that like being assigned female at birth is too complex for medical studies. You'll read papers on like birth control, and they'll do studies on, on birth control that they will do on people who were assigned male at birth for birth control for people who are assigned female at birth. It's wild. I will say that I don't think of myself as like a micro expression detector. Like many times incongruence takes on very macro forms, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My personal like incongruence detector tends to be things like when people talk about 
uh, how they limit themselves. I mean, people in their in their conversation, when they talk about themselves, they'll talk about their goals. And a lot of the times they talk about, instead of talking about the things they want, they'll talk about the way that their past has made them feel that they are limited. Virginia Satir would very much agree with you. Yes, I'm not familiar with that person. So I, I would love to hear more if you want to talk more about that. Oh, I sure do. Okay. Uh, so she I, well, I gathered was... from you beginning here. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of um, a running gag on okay. the podcast that I bring her up all the time, but she's very often relevant. So she was um, a family therapist who started in the 50s and practiced until like the late 80s. And okay. she is largely responsible for creating a form of family therapy called conjoint family therapy which is where they brought the whole family into the room, into the therapeutic setting, rather than, you know, isolating the problem child in one-on-one interviews, right? Okay. She was sort of a, a systems thinker, and so she wanted to look at the family holistically. Interesting. Yeah, I think that is both very interesting and a good sort of steering back. I like it. So she said um, her sort of vision was, if you can heal the family, you can heal the world. That is very interesting. I've actually, so I'm not a a therapist. I'm not qualified as a therapist. I don't claim to be, um, but I do find a lot of her method helpful to me when I'm facilitating things because it's really about human relationships and family relationships are just a particular type of relationship that humans can have. But there is more, I think more in common, you know, between different human relationships than there is different. Yeah, I would absolutely agree there. And having the basis of, um, so I'm also very much not a therapist, but I've, I've had a lot of various bits of therapy over the years and having that kind of basis of just taking people's concerns seriously and thinking about people seriously and relationships and yeah. And and thinking about humans as people and not resources is a weirdly big step, but it's very important. You know how startups and other companies sometimes talk about how they're a family and how gross that is. Yeah. It's pretty gross, but it is true that people who are on, for example, you know, software teams develop real meaningful human relationships with each other. Not, they're not going to be like siblings, but they are real people that are interacting in real ways. It's impossible to not. So the U S is like a, what we call a shareholder focused economy. What that means, we have a shareholder value perspective. So we think of like the objective of a company is to bring value to shareholders, right? So that kind of makes sense. That's, would you generally agree with me there that that, that seems like our value system? Yeah. Yeah. And this is also like, this is backed by research. I've got the paper (laughs) and all the sources. I mean, I would, I would call it uh, exploiting the surplus value of labor, but shareholder value also works. <laughs> Excellent. But it turns out that that is not the way it is everywhere. So Germany is a stakeholder value perspective country. And I happen to study German, uh, the language, the country, the politics, literature, all that stuff for seven years. Um, I'm not myself German. I am not an expert in the same way that someone who lives there, who 
you know, worked in German firms and all that would be, to be clear. But stakeholder value perspective countries. That perspective, it's an organizational purpose that they use in Germany and other countries. And so it's called uh, sometimes the welfare state is combined with a so-called consultation economy. So what they do is instead of saying that the purpose of a firm is to bring value to the shareholders, they say the purpose of the firm is to bring value to all of the stakeholders, which includes shareholders, employees, suppliers, consumers, the government, and the community where the firm is active. So that means like, you know, the corner store where employees go by to get their, you know, their soda on their way to work, all of that, the whole community. And then the firms try to balance the interests of all of the stakeholders, and they frequently consult with them. Firms and stakeholder economies have reputations for longer-term contracts because when you're in a stakeholder economy, it's not a family in the same way. You know, it's not a family in the, like, exploitative kind of thing. But because you have this kind of enmeshment, it's not like, you know, here where you're just trying to make a quick buck or where you're trying to get as much money as you can, where it's that exploitative thing. But you have a longer-term contract because you have this fundamental belief that a firm and a supplier can find an arrangement that's long-lasting and mutually beneficial. So it's this whole fundamentally different belief system, and it changes everything. I like it. One of the things it reminds me of is the difference in game theory between a, a, a single stage game and a repeated game. So a, a yeah. game you play multiple times. And there are scenarios that are sort of prisoner's dilemmas in single stage games where you end up screwing each other over, which mm-hmm. if you know you have to play the game again, you will make different decisions. Yes. That is very much the case. That absolutely happens. There tend to be like short-term contracts with suppliers, poor supplier relations, supply disruptions and quality issues also are uh, hallmarks in shareholder systems. Hey, who's been dealing with supply disruptions, quality issues, and poor supplier relations in this time of crisis lately? What shareholder economies have been having trouble <laughs> So, yeah, interestingly, um, in a book called Out of the Crisis, Deming talked a lot about the importance of maintaining long-term relationships with vendors and suppliers. Yeah, it is very important, and it's a lot harder to do in a shareholder uh, value system than it is in a stakeholder value system. So because of this, there's this idea called Mitbestimmung as well, which is this code, literally code determination. So there's a worker council and a council of executives that work together on problems as they crop up. And so having that in addition to these like good supplier relations is one of the reasons that historians believe or and economists believe that Germany pulled itself out of the last um, economic crisis so quickly is that they had this group of executives and workers who were actually working to solve the problem so quickly. And then they have this like, this set relationship. So the, the really interesting thing about this for me is that, so there are different forms of co-determination uh-huh. and they map onto Marx's forms of alienation. Tell me more about that. So there's co-determination in uh, your work position, being informed, consulted about your tasks and responsibilities and procedures and so on. 
Mm-hmm. And this maps on to alienation, you know, of the work, you know, the sort of tailorist, you're told what to do. You don't get to make decisions about how you carry out your tasks and so on. Mm-hmm. And then there is operational co-determination, which is about business arrangements, how personnel are, are you know, allocated, right? How you hire and things like that. And then there's corporate determination, which is sort of like how the, the company is structured, who is on, like, who is on, you know, what is sort of equivalent to the board of directors, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting to me because it, so the theory of alienation is that capitalism is designed to separate workers from the things that they derive meaning from in the work, right? Uh-huh. And it seems like co-determination is in some senses an attempt to bring that connection back. So I just, I find that interesting. That is. It occurred to me that that there's, it's so much more of a focus on relationships than on states. Like I'm thinking of like focus on the connection between two dots rather than the dots themselves. Yeah, that's a really common thing you'll find in um, complexity theory, that the interactions between the parts are much more interesting than the parts themselves. It's true of complex adaptive systems, which is sort of the domain of study. And it turns out that corporations and states and things are those. They are complex and adaptive. Yeah. One hundred percent, John, that it is absolutely in these like these stakeholder systems about the focus on the relationships, the connections between the dots. They focus a lot on the anxiety of the social uncertainty that this like this fear that you'll like start a contract and that someone will then break the contract to go and have a contract with someone else because it's better or that the that those social uh those social connections will break down versus the exchange value uncertainty that you see in shareholder societies where they're, they're worried that you'll start a contract and then the value of the contract that you have will decrease. And so you're always looking for maximizing the value of the contracts that you already have, or then seeing if you can, you know, exchange that contract for something else. But so talking about business personnel allocation anxieties, <laughs> Right. Do you mind if we talk about termination of employment contracts in Germany? Because yeah. this this blew my mind. I made my professor talk with me about it for an entire class period. We talked about nothing but getting fired because it was so alien to me. If you want to terminate your employment contract in Germany, if there's a works council that exists there, which is not the same thing as it's so a works council, as I said, because one of the things that can work with the executive council to solve problems that exist on the ground in your firm. So if it exists, they need to be notified and consulted before every dismissal, every single one. Basic dismissal period is four weeks, and it can be greater if you've worked there for longer. So in any business with more than 10 employees, termination of employees that have been employed for more than six months has to be socially justified. And so you have to prove that it was based on person-related reasons, conduct-related reasons, or operational. So for conduct, if you're saying like your conduct was not acceptable and that's why I'm going to fire you, you need to have a, a prior like written warning and prove that you said the conduct was unacceptable and that they were given a chance to improve it and they can take you to court if you did not do that. If it's on personal grounds, which is usually something like an absence due to illness, like if you if you said, hey, I can work a lot and then suddenly we're not able to work. Or you can have a dismissal for operational reasons, like saying, you know, that this position no longer exists. 
But this is the one that's like really interesting to me because if it's something that's changed on a structural entrepreneurial decision on the employer's part, so like if it's in the interest of profitability, um, that job that it doesn't exist anymore, that position is gone, you have to prove that it permanently ceases to exist and there's no vacant positions in the company. So you can't move that person anywhere else. And then the employer can't actually choose which person they remove. They have to conduct a social selection among comparable employees. Um, So what they do is they look at all of the employees in that position, uh, in that kind of position, and they compare their age, their years of service. They look to see if they're married. They see if they have dependent children, if they have a severe disability. They check to see if it's going to be easy for them to get another job or not. Um, And based on that, that's how they, in cooperation with this works council, decide who gets removed from that position, who gets fired. Um, So they work together to decide who they think is going to be most employable. They basically get rid of their best employee in that position who has like the fewest dependent children or like who's in the least vulnerable position. And that's who they get rid of. Because the burden of proof is on the employer to prove that they have to get rid of someone. And because the goal is to absolutely make sure that you do not like fire people. The goal is is to say like, hey, these are humans with jobs. We want to keep them employed. We're not ruining their lives. We're not getting rid of them for no reason. Um, And people who are protected from getting fired includes pregnant employees, mothers after childbirth, employees on parental leave, and then candidates and members of the worker council and the data protection officer. So every time that I see things about like people getting fired for trying to organize things like that, I think about these policies about how unbelievably hard it is to get fired in Germany. It's a very different system. It blows my mind. When you hear about these rules and policies and you look at sort of their closest equivalents in the U.S., so for example, I guess performance improvement plans is something like, you know, the paper trail that you're talking about. The cynical and not completely inaccurate view of PIPs is that you've decided to fire someone and now you need a paper trail so that you can show that it was justified, right? Right. That's sort of a a malicious compliance type of deal. I'm wondering how much of that there is in these German companies. You know, you have to follow the the letter of the law, but you certainly plan on firing this person you don't like. So I'm sure that there's some of that. I first got this from my co-author, by which I mean the the main author I co-authored, who is a German woman, so from Germany, who was explaining the system to me for an hour because I did not believe her that it worked like that. So I'm sure that there are absolutely many places that are bad and that do have that kind of system. Um, But there are also a lot that do have those protections. Like Germany has legendary labor protection. It seems like the the counterbalance, the sort of countervailing force is the worker councils, is giving workers equal representation in, in business decisions. And I think for me, the takeaway is that power matters. You know, these things work in a certain power dynamic and don't work in a different power dynamic. 
I mean, because the workers um, in in the German context have that influence on the council. I think I could be wrong, but it seems possible to me. Like if you look at what happens in U.S. companies and when a worker is put on a performance improvement plan, if they're not a member of a union, they have effectively no recourse. You know, they're completely at the, the whims and the mercy of their employer. They have no countervailing, you know, power to what their boss decides. My takeaway is that the structure matters and that we need to, uh, said I want to have those kind of structures and build those kind of structures because I'm optimistic and cynical. <laughs> and you're right. In the U.S., we don't have those kinds of protections, but also there are countries that, that have them and make them work. And in the U.S., we have a lot of, it's, I think, very much a company line to say that there aren't protections, that there won't be safety. I mean, we saw there was a, what was it, the article that Karina put in the Slack today about the Amazon workers who use their power to strike and get the Amazon worker reinstated in Shakopee, Minnesota. Yeah. So the, the structure doesn't exist, but the power actually does. It's just that without the underlying structure in place. So actually, okay, back to my paper again. Hey, it's the Allen Hour. So it comes a little bit down to emergent and deliberate strategy. So deliberate strategy is like the strategy that when you're sitting down and deliberating and you can stop and think and plan it out and make decisions, that's the strategy that you want to have. That's the like, okay, cool, I'm going to have breakfast this morning and work real hard and, you know, do good stuff. Emergent strategy is a strategy that you fall back on when you're in times of crisis and you cannot make, you know, something is happening that means you cannot do that. You know, breakfast isn't there. You can't go outside, whatever's going on. So you fall back on whatever you have the structures and the culture to do. So what we see now is that companies like Germany have the structure and have the culture of a stakeholder value perspective. You know, they have this sort of stakeholder thing going on where, you know, they value more than just the shareholder. And so that's what they fall back on in times of crisis. In the U.S., we have this shareholder thing going on. And so in times of crisis, we don't have those same kind of protections. We don't have that that strong labor protection. I think, though, too, that what we're seeing now is that I kind of think that the, like, the gig economy that we have created has built some people who do actually have a stakeholder like economy, right? And they are now like coming together right now and using their power, even though they don't have this structure to fall back on to protect each other. Like that's what we're seeing some with these protests, right? But even though we don't have the structure to fall back on to help save us and to guide us in times when we're, you know, stuck on this emergent strategy and when we're stuck, you know, scared and not sure what to do, that power still exists. We just don't know how to use it. Yeah. I think because we we've lost so much of that familiarity, that common like everyday language talking about worker rights and unions and, and labor like over the, you know, over the last 50 years, so much of that has disappeared that, that like, it's not something people think about these days, except the people that are now being targeted by Amazon. One commonality in these various things we're talking about is that workers have, we have more power than perhaps we think we do, but it comes from our ability to work together. It comes from collective action. 
So the Amazon worker was reinstated because of the collective action of their coworkers. Yeah. And, and I think that was partly what I was trying to get to is that we, at least I feel like we've lost some of the understanding of the, of the capabilities of collective action. Um, I would argue that that is by design. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. So (laughs) one of the forms of alienation is alienation of the worker from each other. And so becoming uh, more apart and less connected is a feature of capitalism because it reduces the ability of workers to form you know, alternative power structures by working together. I'm going to mispronounce it, so I'm real sorry, but uh, Faisa Osman, I think is the name, and uh, the uh, worker who was fired and then reinstated, hey, Minnesota. Yeah, like even, you know, a small group of workers working together is terrifying to bosses. It is. I would argue it's them trying to make tech workers view ourselves as part of the company, as part of the tech and not part of the workers, not align ourselves with our coworkers who are, you know, risking their lives out there delivering packages or, you know, getting food or whatever to, you know, they're trying to get us on the keep us on the shareholder side. Um, you know, we, we have to think about when we talk about people in, especially right now, you know, given how hard things are right now, who are people, who are they, who are we, like, who are, who are we talking about? I think it's tough. Yeah. When you think about why tech workers aren't organizing more, I think part of it does come down to, we often don't think of ourselves as workers, you know, a lot of us have salaries that put us in the upper middle class. And like you were saying, we have, you know, nominal equity in the companies we work for. And these other things that are designed to make us believe we have more in common with the bosses than we do with, you know, the janitorial staff, for example. Right. But it is still true that we survive by selling our labor to people who profit from our labor. So we're still workers. Yeah. And frequently the things that the workers need to make them safe or to help them wouldn't hurt us or wouldn't hurt our bosses very much. I mean, or the things that we could do to help them. I mean, a lot of us have, I keep wanting to say infinite. It's not infinite time off. It's unlimited time off or whatever they call it. Like that thing that they say is a perk, but it's actually like been proven to make people take less and less and less vacation. Like, you know, this is the time to actually use these perks against them and help people who are hurting them, you know, who are hurting. But but again, these forces that are at work against all of us, against everyone who's working in tech right now, but we could be building a better tech. Like we are tech. That's the thing that's so exciting to me and that I want all of us to like grab hold of and, and run forward with like, we are tech and there are better ways to do this we can make it better i know for the longest time like i myself thought like that you know as a tech worker i didn't like unions weren't really applicable to me and like as i've paid more attention to it over the last five or six years and started realizing like how useful unions are i was realizing that there's been this super low-key like propaganda about what unions are and what they're for 
just in, embedded in, in the parts of American culture that I've encountered that talk about how it's only for interchangeable workers and, you know, it's just really so that you can get, you know, like a better contract or like, in, but, but because I'm a developer, I like all my like stuff is individual, individually negotiated. So I don't need someone arguing for more pay for me or whatever, because I get all those perks anyway. But like, None of those things are actually relevant to the usefulness of a union, but I feel like there's like there's still a challenge to counteract like legacy of messaging about who unions are for and what we could get out of them. That is all exactly perfectly right. I just agree with everything you said. So, you know, we are uh, a lot of tech workers positioned in a way that makes us hard, makes it hard for us to see the need to organize and unionize for ourselves, right? We're paid well, we have good benefits and so on, but there's a lot that organizing can do for each other and for society, like larger society. So uh, are either of you familiar with Project Maven? Nope. A little bit, but I'd love to hear you talk more about it. Project Maven was a Google contract in 2017 with the U.S. military to develop oh, yeah. artificial intel- like computer vision software to make drone strikes more effective. After like months of backlash, they canceled the project. And then Sundar Pichai, Google CEO, was talking about how Google should not be in the business of war and so on. But it turns out that Google didn't do this because of their superior ethics. They did it because workers stood up to them and demanded a, a change. And they did it, th- you know, the workers that did this did it through collective pressure. That's amazing. Yeah. I've often imagined like how amazing it would be to have, like, like I think many times on the show, we've talked about how HR is not your friend. The HR is for the company. And so if you're going to report a problem like harassment, like they're there to protect the company. And so it's not necessarily in your interest to go through them directly to get something addressed. But imagine if we had a union that could represent us that we could make all of our reports to that could aggregate statistics across the industry and get real numbers about harassment going on at companies uh, and also be an advocate for the worker in those situations. Like that would be absolutely amazing. That'd be phenomenal. I, I think the way that we as like the way we organize effectively is by figuring out what it is that what are the levers that we have access to, right? And a lot of it is our ability to affect the company's bottom line. Uh, like, honestly, that's, you know, in the economy you're describing in America, that's what matters to the people that run these companies. And so there was a study that showed that an average Apple, like senior software engineer, generates $2 million a year in revenue for Apple while being paid like between 100 and 200,000, you know? So if a thousand Apple employees went on strike for a day, Apple would lose $5 million. I I imagine too, that it's got to be more right now also, because that study had to be done when people were able to do things like go outside. Like, I feel like our collective power right now has to be greater than it ever was before, because not only are people also inside and consuming more online things than ever before, but also like people's access to things outside is also dependent on apps. Like our collective power is greater than ever before. At the same time, though, like at a macro level, labor power is is at an all time low. 
you know, like unions today are less powerful than they've ever been. I don't have a, a happy thought to, I know, to right? follow I was that like, up with. So what do we do about it? <laughs> I think that we add our power to it. I think part of that is that like we have been so divorced from, as we've been saying, like we've been so divorced from the other workers. We've been so divorced from the other workers. We've had all these social pressures to make us think of ourselves as closer to the bosses than to the people who are working to deliver the things or working to actually consume the app, to make deliveries, to work in the warehouses, whatever. And like, we should be building our unions to be working with and for them because they are our coworkers. <laughs> like they are, we need to be thinking about them as such, not like people who work somewhere else and have different problems. Like, I guess I, I maybe don't know enough about unions specifically to talk about that particular force, but we have so much power if we could work together. And those are our coworkers who are risking their lives and dying. Like, Yeah. One thing I would say is that there is some sort of movement towards unions for tech workers. So there is um, the Tech Workers Coalition, but historically trade unions divide workers in the same factory into multiple, like into separate competing groups. And actually this benefits the people who own the factory. What you want is everyone in the factory organizing together. And so I think tech workers need to broaden our horizons and try to think about solidarity outside of our own, you know, in group. Yeah, I agree. I feel like that was what I was saying yes yeah i think i was trying to yes and you okay cool yeah go team <laughs> yay so bringing it back to the the um, shareholder versus stakeholder divide and it, it strikes me that the increasing collective action in the united states could be a lever to start changing that cultural predetermination of, you know, moving in the direction of stakeholder value rather than shareholder value, because if the workers can, you know, organize and craft a narrative about like the impact of that organization, we can start redefining, you know, what business is supposed to be doing. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think too that we're we're kind of heading in that direction a little bit anyway, even before this lag of the movement started, just because of some of our increasing inner reliance as well. I mean, there are German like it is an increasingly international world. Like we have a lot of German and American companies who are working together or tech companies that are German and American um, working together too. I know that I have spoken with people who worked at international companies that were talking about some of the interactions that they had there or some of their experiences and just some of their experiences bringing the culture across. But yes, I do think that's true. I think also that it it's true because as I think it was, I don't remember actually if it was John or Ryan. I think it was Ryan who was talking about the narrative that we had about unions. One of you was talking about the narrative that we had about unions earlier and about how it's who gets to have a union. But we also have this sort of narrative about like working towns and about how a town with like coal is the lifeblood of the town. And I feel like that's that's a very sort of stakeholder community sort of idea. 
And so with, with that kind of idea coming back in of a town that has an industry that with its lifeblood, that's not a shareholder concept. Like that's not something that's like, oh yeah, the guy at the top is making all the money and getting the best from that. Um, so I feel like we're, we're bringing that back around some. What can people do next? Like what should people come away from this podcast thinking about? I think that people should come away from the podcast thinking about their coworkers and, and their relation to workers and to themselves as a working person differently. I think that we need to kind of interrogate our place in the working world again. And it's it's very uncomfortable. And I understand that. <laughs> Every time I talk about this, I get someone DMing me with some very mean things. And uh <laughs> But I understand that it's uncomfortable, but we need to come out of this thinking about just sort of as tech workers, like what is our place in the world and how can we make it better? Because like it or not, we're here, like we're making an impact and we can choose to keep making that impact towards shareholders. We can choose to keep building shareholder values. We can choose to keep holding those values sort of sacrosanct, or we can choose to start enshrining some different values and we can look at uh, where we stand in the world a little bit differently. So, yeah. So I think that would be what I would hope would be a takeaway as just kind of evaluate where you are. And I understand it's real hard, especially now that everyone is, you know, struggling, but everyone is struggling. So, and please don't message me mean thanks for saying that. (laughs) It reminds me of um, Anwan Simmons has a, a, a wonderful talk that he's given for a couple of years now called Lending Privilege, uh, where he talks about, you know, those of us on the high end of the privilege scale can use that power to lift people up, to lend our privilege to defend or to give people that don't have that privilege, you know, additional power to make changes or to, to do what they need to do. And by the same token, the the industry itself you know, all of us workers collectively, you know, we're in a very privileged part of you know, the, the working world. We can lend that privilege. We can lift yeah. the unions up. We can, we can use the comfortable positions we have to make everybody's life easier. And I, ideally, too, like when we do that, our positions become safer as well. Like, it's not just, I mean, like, that should not be the goal. That's not what we're aiming for. But in helping others, we also do help ourselves. That's not the point of helping people. But it's a fun perk. So thinking about, you know, earlier when we were talking about relationships and talking about collective power and in the sort of vein of thinking globally and acting locally, I would urge folks listening to this to start talking to their coworkers and to start building the sorts of connections that you may need to rely on later. One form of resilience is what David Woods describes as network architectures that can sustain the ability to adapt. And so that is something that happens in biology, you know, in human bodies, that's something that happens among people. And so if you want to work collectively with your coworkers, the very first step, I think, is connecting with them as coworkers and mm-hmm. talking about, you know, your shared challenges and then having this well to draw on uh, more easily later when you might need it. Excellent. 
I would also add that you should find ways to dip your toes into the pool of uh, worker power. So um, we might not be able to get workers on the board of directors in your company in the U.S., but Russell Ackhoff, the management consultant operational research person, has a thing he calls the manager board. And what that is, is a manager has a board that they are responsible and responsive to. And that board includes that manager's boss, but also everyone that reports to that manager. Hmm. And that board ideally determines whether that manager gets to keep their job Hmm. or get a raise or what that manager needs to do differently to properly support, you know, their reports. If you can get your manager to meet with your team on a regular basis to discuss the needs of your team, that is a step in that direction. Yes. Yeah, that's a good start. You know, it's interesting to me thinking about this, and I definitely don't have any good answers here, but like as as a manager myself, I'm sort of stuck a little bit in two different worlds because I think the company thinks of me as now a boss, um, but I think of myself as a worker and threading that needle as far as like what I'm advocating for, what I'm, how do I talk to my reports about, you know, labor rights, things like that. That's an interesting and thicket of things to explore. Yeah, it's very tough. I think that there's definitely a point where you realize that you have to just start listening and advocating and stop thinking of yourself in as many ways as possible, which is hard. (laughs) But yeah, as an incredibly, incredibly white person, I often refer to it as getting my white girl stank on things. Be like, what do you need? What can I help with? How can I help you with my privilege? But yes, it's a hard line to walk for sure. Also, um, for for any managers that are listening to this podcast, hello, thank you for listening. One of the advantages to a um, manager board for you is that you know how difficult it is to translate high-level strategy into day-to-day operations. And the manager board connects up to five levels of your uh, organizational hierarchy and makes it much easier for people at different levels of your organization to know what other people are doing. And so it will also help you, by the way. Indeed. So when we come to the end of an episode, we like to go into what we call reflections, which are just a simple like distillation of the ideas that really struck us, that were discussed here, or the things that we're going to take away with us, or things to just need to think about more. I think for me, this episode has been just a good reminder of the value of collective action and, and actually reigns like emphasis of that as like the core of organization and unions and, and those sorts of things is a really, for me, powerful, almost reframe uh, or just at least reemphasis of that aspect of it that, that feels good to me and that feels worth remembering. So my reflection is two things. Tech workers are workers, and workers have more in common with other workers than they do with bosses. Nice. That's it. I know that I personally need to spend more time thinking about the practical ways of implementing collective action in tech because I care about it a lot. It's very important. Ah, yes. Praxis. A thing that is good. I have one bonus reflection. So like one topic we didn't actually get a chance to dive into, but which I think would have been really interesting is, is your work with 
tech and fiber arts. And so I wanted to throw out a call to like, it was episode 80 that we did back a couple years ago with Chris Howard called crafting a community. Um, I'll post a link here in the chat and Mindy can put it in the show notes, but that uh, episode also talked about technology and fiber arts and the difference between what crafters and makers and why that's a weirdly gendered distinction are. So it's a fascinating episode. Excellent. I would love to check that out. I love talking about uh, gender and craft and art. If you've enjoyed this conversation and would like to have more conversations like this with the people who enjoy listening to this episode, as well as the panelists, uh, you can join our Slack group. The best way to do that is to contribute on our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash greater than code. Contributing any amount will get you an invite to our Slack group. Special note because times are tough right now with the pandemic raging or all around us, uh, and especially with people losing jobs due to the virus, we have opened up free entry to our community. Those of you who want to join, uh, we've got a pretty active jobs channel where we're sharing links uh, and information. And uh, so reach out to any one of us on Twitter, uh, DM, whatever, and uh, we can get you an invite to the community and uh, you can join us there. Also, if you have a job and want to freely advertise that job, you can come do that. Who one that you're trying to get someone to to take, not just like Sorry, I've a, got job a job opening? Yes. Sorry. No. Don't just come here and brag about having a job. That is not <laughs> a what little I'm bit. Mean. Just a little bit. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Ellen. It was great talking to you. Yeah. You too.